Let's turn to read from God's Word to the Gospel according to Luke. Turning to Luke chapter 7, and we're beginning to read at verse number 36. Very striking episode in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, and as we'll see today, takes us to the very heart of the Gospel. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money uh, to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose, uh, the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not, not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Suppose you've arranged a special meal. Folk have been invited. You know they're coming. You're making all your preparations. And if you are the host or the hostess for that meal, of course you want everything to go smoothly. You don't want any hitches that would spoil the occasion. Maybe it's an occasion when, for some reason, you want to impress your guests. You want them to see how good a host you are, your competence in organizing, a hostess will want to perhaps demonstrate her culinary skills. Perhaps you want to show off your good taste. You may well want to impress 
the people who come, you certainly don't want them to go away thinking worse of you as a result of sitting around your table. And then suppose everyone is there and the meal is underway and something utterly unforeseen happens, something you couldn't have planned for, you couldn't anticipate. Some unforeseen event that distracts everybody's attention away from the meal and the happy conversation. And that becomes the focus of their attention. Inevitably, then you feel this, this is going to be a disaster. You've lost, you've lost their attention. They're going to go away. And what are they going to think of this whole occasion? They'll remember it and they'll not remember it for good reasons. You don't want anything unforeseen cropping up in the middle of your dinner party. Let me see exactly that situation, a totally unforeseen event that that happens in the, the middle of a dinner given by Simon the Pharisee. And suddenly, it seems, the whole evening is going to be a disaster. And Simon's standing and reputation are going to be ruined in the eyes of his guests. We can perhaps put ourselves at least in a limited way into the sandals of those who were there at the meal. And so we come now to the last of our studies in Luke for the present time, concluding verses of Luke 7. We're looking at verses 36 to 50. The wonder of grace. The wonder of grace. I think in many ways a very good and very appropriate place to stop the present series of studies. The wonder of grace. We see first of all uh, in looking at uh, the record of this dinner, striking action. Striking action. Now, we need to try and put ourselves into the culture of the day. Otherwise, some of this will seem a bit strange to us. A meal like this would be much more of a public event than what we would experience. The concept of privacy in that culture would be very different from ours. Uh, It's much the way that missionaries sometimes find when they go parts of Africa and elsewhere that uh, the idea of privacy is very different from what we have. We have a very strong sense uh, of privacy in our homes. If you go to other cultures, it is not necessarily like this. Uh, And so here, uh, parts of Simon's home would be much more open, uh, perhaps in a, a, a courtyard in the house than we would experience and probably we would be comfortable with. People could walk in just as this woman does. It wouldn't be surprising. She wasn't, as we'd think of it, as a a kind of rude gate crasher. Much more of of a public event. People who come in and out in a way that we would find very difficult Uh, We might also mention there is a record uh, in the other three Gospels 
uh, of a woman anointing uh, Jesus' feet, Mary, uh, the sister of Lazarus. But this isn't that episode. This is different. This is early in Jesus' ministry. The other three Gospels record something that happened uh, very near the end of his ministry. This isn't Mary, uh, the sister of Lazarus, who comes in uh, on this occasion. It's a different episode, makes a different point. So a woman comes in, we are told. She'd learned that Jesus was eating here. No doubt it was uh, the general talk in the neighborhood. Jesus was coming to the home of Simon the Pharisee. He'd be a prominent man, an important man in the community. And so people would know Jesus is coming uh, to dine at Simon's home. And very deliberately, she comes to meet Jesus. It is clear that she really strongly wants to meet him. It's not something uh, casual, but very consciously, uh, deliberately, she wants to meet him. And why she wants to meet him will gradually become clear. We'll discover the reason as we go through the record. We're not told at the outset a good storyteller. Luke simply presents a woman. She walks in. She does something very unexpected. Who is this? What is going on here? And little by little it will be revealed. We're drawn into the story, of course, to find out. We can imagine ourselves, first time we've heard this. We're familiar with it, but suppose you hadn't heard it before. Your curiosity is piqued. You want to find out what is going on here. But even perhaps when you do know the story, you might still be wondering what is going on here. Notice how she's described verse 37. The ESV puts it quite literally, a woman of the city, a sinner. It's generally assumed she was or she had been a prostitute. It doesn't say that, but it's the most likely explanation for the designation a sinner. Maybe in other sins, but certainly an immoral life is the most likely. And certainly whatever exactly her sin was, she's a woman who is a notorious sinner as far as the community is concerned. They know her when she comes in, and Simon certainly does. Her her presence is very unwelcome to respectable guests. This is not the kind of person you want walking in to an important gathering like this. People like that belong outside, in the shadows where they don't embarrass anybody. And of course to a Pharisee, good-living, law-keeping, scrupulous Pharisee like Simon, here was, was something very offensive the standards of purity and propriety. And so it is a very tense encounter. We need to try and recapture something of that. And Jesus first hears, many of them at least initially, their sympathies would be with Simon and not the woman. We might, in the light of all we know, tend uh, to, to be on her side. But most of Jesus' hearers would be on Simon's side. Here's a good living man being embarrassed, being put on the spot. This is awful. 
What is this woman doing? What is she thinking? Coming in and behaving in this way. And her action is shocking. Now she comes in, she shows a great deal of of courage and determination. Uh, She's no idea how she'll be received, but she could probably guess uh, how most of the people there will receive her, what they'll think about her, what their attitude to her is. And still she comes because meeting Jesus really matters to her. She's not going to be put off by what other people think. But her action is shocking. An alabaster jar of perfume, something that was very expensive, uh, the one that, that Mary uh, of Bethany used at the end of the Gospels, we're told uh, it cost about a year's wages of a working man. I mean, that's the, the level that, that we're dealing with here, something that is very expensive, that, that would not normally be used in this way. It is a really extravagant gesture. For her to do this at such a cost, even if she'd been well off, it is still an extravagant gesture. She's at his feet. Now again, uh, we need to be able to visualize this. Because our first thought may be of people sitting around the table and chairs the way we wouldn't. We end up then thinking of this woman somehow crawling under the table to get to Jesus' feet. It's nothing like that. There would be a table in the middle. There would be couches around the table And people would recline, they would lean on one arm and use their other hand to eat from the table. They'd be stretched out, almost like the spokes on a wheel with their feet out behind them. And so the woman is able to come to Jesus' feet, the end of the couch that he's reclining on. Very easy for her to do that. And she's weeping. Deep emotion. Again, adds, no doubt, to the embarrassment of the people sitting there. Not only does she come in, the woman is in tears. She's weeping. She wets Jesus' feet with her tears. She's wiping them with her hair. Even the fact her hair was unbound was not respectable in that culture. And she kisses his feet, pours perfume on them. You can imagine something of the atmosphere. You could have cut it with a knife, probably, and a very blunt one. They're probably sitting in stunned silence. What is anybody going to say? Who is going to speak? Who's going to do anything? And and what does it all mean? What is happening? You can imagine looking at one another. Nobody wants to say anything, but there's plenty going on in their heads. What do they make of it? And yet Jesus understands exactly what he witnesses. He knows what's happening. And the key is in verse 47. She loved much. Her actions are a token of her love for Jesus. And that fundamentally is what is happening. She loved much. The context of her love, and we'll be coming back to this again because this is vital Her many sins have been forgiven, the Lord says. What we see here, what people were witnessing, even though they didn't really understand it, is a love for the Lord 
that results from sins forgiven. She has received forgiveness for her sins, and so she loves the Lord, and she is demonstrating her love for Jesus in these actions that at first seem quite bizarre. What she is doing then is the action of a forgiven sinner. We must understand that. If you miss that, you have missed the point of what Luke records. We are witnessing the action of a forgiven sinner. Yes, it's striking action, but that is the motivation for, and it's on that that the Lord is going to focus, as we'll see. That's what's crucial to this whole account. She loved much. Why did she love much? Because her sins have been forgiven. Striking action. Second, we see in the record stinging criticism. Stinging criticism. Remember, Simon's a Pharisee. Now, we've encountered them a number of times already in the gospel. And you can't read any of the gospels uh, for any length of time without encountering the Pharisees and the scribes. Most of them were, were Pharisees. Remember, as a Pharisee, what is this man? He's a pillar of the religious establishment. He is the, 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 the most good living of the good living among the Jews, law-keeping, scrupulous, every detail of the regulations, but food, about cleanliness, all of that is just how Simon lives and how Simon thinks. Why had he invited Jesus to have dinner? What was behind that? We're not told. Was it simply curiosity? Jesus clearly was a an interesting figure, somebody people were talking about. He'd done, said some very unusual things. Maybe Simon wants simply to hear a, a bit more from Jesus, get, a, get a, a handle on what he's about and who he really is. Is he maliciously motivated, as some Pharisees would have been, uh, hoping Jesus will make some kind of careless statement that could be used to discredit him? Plenty of the Pharisees would have looked for that. There's no indication in the record of any serious interest in Jesus' message. You might like to think that Simon wanted to hear the gospel, and so he invited Jesus. It's not impossible, but there's nothing here that suggests that was Simon's motivation. Whatever exactly it was, he doesn't seem to be a man with a serious spiritual interest in what Jesus would have to say. And Simon's attitudes would not, of course, be unusual. They would be shared by many others. And as you see his attitude to different uh, people here, it's very revealing about Simon and revealing about many among the Jews, many who'd be sitting there around the table. You think of his view of the woman. She's a sinner, verse 39. 
Well, of course, if Simon believed his Bible, his, our Old Testament, he would say, well, yes, we are all sinners in God's sight. And yet, isn't it clear, Simon is putting her into a, a category of sinners that he is sure he doesn't belong to. He might be willing to say, yes, we're all sinners, but here are sinners like this woman here in a category of their own. I mean, they are really sinners. And I certainly don't belong to that category of sinner. That would be characteristic of the Pharisees' outlook. A a group for the outcasts, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the open public sinners. Pharisees didn't belong there. They didn't see themselves as sinners in that sense. They might break the law sometimes. They might make mistakes in observing the rituals, but they didn't see themselves as sinners as people like her were, who really, really needed to be cleansed. Simon didn't have that sense of sin. That's quite evident. His attitude to the woman and his attitude to Jesus also, of course, is very revealing. Verse 39, if this man were a prophet, and the form of the question, the language used makes it clear that Simon did not believe that Jesus was a prophet. It wouldn't be entirely wrong to translate his words as if this man were a prophet, but he isn't. That was Simon's assumption. Jesus isn't a prophet. He doesn't believe that Jesus is even a prophet. We needn't get on to Messiah and Son of God. He's not even a prophet. And if he were a prophet, first of all, he would know what kind of woman this is. He doesn't. Apparently he doesn't. So he's not a prophet. And if he were a prophet... He wouldn't associate with someone like this. He would not have a woman like that touching him, anointing his feet, all of that. He can't be a prophet or he would not associate with sinners like her. And again, we have seen the Pharisees' outlook before and Simon is characteristic of that. And here's a man who doesn't even see Jesus as a prophet. And he thinks of prophets and religious people as those who have nothing to do with sinners like this woman. None of them near them. They are true sinners. And people like Simon didn't have any sense of their own sin. And we wouldn't have far to go. We wouldn't have to go outside some churches to find people with the same outlook. That we are good living people. We go to church when we read our Bibles. And yes, the Bible says we're sinners, but we're not serious sinners. Not really. Here are other people out there that are very obviously sinners. Here are people who certainly are not like us, who really need to be cleansed in a way we don't. And the Pharisees have not died out. And there are plenty of them about. 
He doesn't voice his criticism. He doesn't say out loud that this is what he thinks, but the Lord knows his heart. And above all, Simon has no sense of spiritual need. He's hardened in self-righteousness and looks down on others. He's convinced that he certainly is righteous and this woman most certainly is not. Striking action. Stinging criticism. Thirdly, we see in the record strong rebuke. Strong rebuke. Jesus knows Simon's thoughts. He says, verse 40, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he makes the point by telling a story. Two men owed money. A very simple story, a very short parable we might call it. And the point is clear. Two men owe debt. One is a huge debt, one's a small debt. Neither can pay. Both are forgiven. Which of them will love the master more? That's the question, verse 42. I think it's an easy question. It's not hard uh, to, to get the right answer to the question. And yet Simon seems a little reluctant to, to state what's the obvious. I suppose, he says. I think it does suggest Simon is having the answer dragged out of him. Why? Well, very likely Simon sees where this is going. And he doesn't like where it's going. So he doesn't really want to answer, but of course he, he can't avoid it. I suppose, of course. There's <laughs> more than supposing. It's, it's as clear as day what the answer is. The one who is forgiven the far greater debt who would love more. And then Jesus drives home the lesson. He often did, particularly with the Pharisees and others, would draw them out, get them to answer a question, and then Jesus would hit them with the point he was making. The lesson regarding this woman. A series of rebukes to Simon. Unfavorable comparisons between Simon and the woman. The very opposite, of course, of what Simon thought and wanted and what most of the guests around the table would have thought. Jesus hammers at home three comparisons. I come into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, but she from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. You did not, but she. Three times. Simon can't miss the point. He can't avoid the point that Jesus is making. Simon is left with no excuse. His religion is exposed as something that is ultimately superficial. 
At best, Simon's religion is keeping the rules. Dotting the I's, crossing the T's, good at that, but keeping the rules. That is all his religion ultimately amounts to. And the key issue, we've had it before, we've come back to it now. She loved much. And that could not be said of Simon the Pharisee. In Simon's heart, there is no evidence of love for God. Pharisaic religion was a matter of works, of earning your way into God's favor, of doing enough in order to satisfy God's requirements. It was works religion. Despite what the Old Testament said, if they'd really studied their Bible, they would have seen something very different in Scripture. But they didn't. Works religion. The idea of grace is eclipsed. It just disappears, practically speaking, from the religion of the Pharisees. It's a matter of doing your best, working hard, pleasing God, keeping the rules, ticking the boxes. That's the religion of Pharisees. That's the religion of Simon. And he has no sense of need of forgiveness. Not really. He might pay lip service to the idea, but in practice, no sense of need of forgiveness. Work hard, do your best, keep the rules, observe the law, and you hope you'll meet God's standard. For all these tax collectors and prostitutes and others, they haven't a hope of doing that. No place for grace. It's all about works. And Jesus puts his finger right on Simon's failure. He exposes the emptiness and the futility of such a religion. A religion without grace and without the love that flowed from it. Even outwardly, Simon really treated Jesus very shabbily. Not to welcome a guest in the way Jesus described. Water to wash, the the oil for his head, so on. Those were basic social graces, and he doesn't even perform those for Jesus. And yet he'll be in synagogue, no doubt, on the Sabbath, looking pious and dressed up and all the rest of it. People look and think, there's a religious man. The Lord sees his heart and knows how wrong that estimate is. Strong rebuke. Here's empty works religion that's of no value in God's sight. And as long as you think that religion is a matter of keeping rules and trying to satisfy God's standard and being good enough for God, Your religion is empty, and you're as far away from God as Simon was. And it was very far. The Lord saw his heart. The Lord knew the reality that was there. God forbid that we would for a moment think that our works, our efforts, our keeping God's law somehow will make us right with God. Those things never will. And the need to trust them takes you further away from God. 
the God of grace, strong rebuke, striking action, stinging criticism, strong rebuke, but finally, praise the Lord, saving grace. Saving grace. Now we need to understand clearly what Jesus says here. He is not saying for a moment that the love of this woman earns her salvation, earns her forgiveness. Jesus is not saying that, and nowhere does Scripture suggest that such a thing is possible. He says in verse 47, her sins which are many are forgiven. Now look, he's not for a moment disregarding her sin. He's not saying, well, her sins don't really matter that much. They are sins and they need forgiveness. They are abominations to God. But Jesus says, Her sins have been forgiven. They need to be forgiven, and they have been. And it's vital we understand that Jesus says of the woman, he uses in Luke's account a a perfect tense. They're not to get complicated, but Jesus is describing something that happened earlier. That's the point. Something that had happened before she came in that evening. Her sins have been forgiven. Same in verse 48. He says to her, your sins have been forgiven. Before the loving, before the weeping, before the anointing, her sins have been forgiven. Her sins were forgiven before she loved Make sure you understand that. Her sins were forgiven before she loved. And her love is a proof of the forgiveness of our sins by the grace of God. That is what secured forgiveness. It is God's grace channeled to her through faith. Her love is not, it could not be, it never will be for any of us. Love will never be the ground of forgiveness. God will never say to anyone, because you loved me, I will forgive your sins. That's works religion. That's as bad as Simon. Her works are the fruit of forgiveness. It's because she was forgiven that she does what she does. Her love is a proof of her forgiveness by the grace of God. She wept and she anointed Jesus' feet as a forgiven sinner. When she was forgiven, we don't know. It may have been a relatively short time before this episode. We're not told. But it was before these events. She wept. 
She anointed, she loved, because her sins had been forgiven. And all that we see here is the fruit of that forgiveness. We're reminded constantly in the scriptures. Good works follow forgiveness. Think of Ephesians 2, by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works. And that includes loving the Lord. You can make that into a work that you think will earn salvation. Cannot be. Good works follow salvation. Loving, weeping, anointing followed the forgiveness of her sins and were the evidence of it. There was no evidence that Simon's sins had been forgiven because they hadn't. He didn't even think he had sins that needed to be forgiven. He's never going to look to the Lord for the grace that he needs. Here's this woman with a load of sin of whatever kind. And she has looked to the Lord and his grace and her sins have been forgiven. And that's why she wanted to meet Jesus and to express her gratitude for forgiveness and her love for the Lord. And she's moved to tears by it. And she pours the perfume on his feet because of what he's done for her. He's changed her life. She's a forgiven sinner. As God, Jesus pronounces that forgiveness, verse 49, your sins have been forgiven. It really strikes people. Who is this to say something like that? Well, we know as God, Jesus speaks those words, the authority of God, your faith, he says, faith that God has implanted in our heart. Gift of God, as Ephesians 2 tells us, your faith has saved you. Not your love, not your weeping, not your anointing, not any of that. Your faith that God planted in your heart You trusted in the Lord for forgiveness and your sins have been forgiven. The Lord say that to us as we sit here today. The Lord say to us, you love me because your sins have been forgiven. Never make the mistake of thinking some effort on your part, however religious it might be, can ever save you. It couldn't save Simon, who was an expert in religious activity. And it couldn't save him. And it can't save you. And it won't. May the Lord say to us today, we love much, why? Because our sins have been forgiven. Our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior, the only one who can forgive. And all the praise and glory 
Es ist.